From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. Today, Republicans are moving at a rapid pace to finalize new legislative districts. Democrats say GOP lawmakers are using smoke and mirrors to create a false impression they are complying with the federal judge's order. Meanwhile, we're waiting to see how Republicans draw a new congressional map to meet the judge's order to create one more majority-minority U.S. House district. I'm Patricia Murphy. I'm Greg Bluestein. Governors Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis clashed on Fox News and Alpharetta last night in a most unusual debate. And I'm Bill Nygut. It's Friday, which means we'll be answering your questions from our listener mailbag. And we'll share our picks for who's up and who's down this week. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. So guys, yesterday was a big day for us. It was our one month anniversary (laughs) of being on the airways reporting live from WABE in Atlanta. We did it, guys. We made it to a month. Where's our champagne? I know. Is this what anniversary is this? Paper or silver? No, you know, or gold? Real, yeah, but really, this sort of reminds me when my kids were teenagers and they were on, you know, starting to date somebody and say, "Oh, we're celebrating our one month anniversary as a couple." We're celebrating our 378th month anniversary as a couple now. I know. Well, I would like to formally thank Natalie Mendenhall, yeah. our producer, Shaney B, our yes. executive producer, the entire production team um, here at WAB. We quite. Literally couldn't do it without them. Yeah, so Matt it's not just sit, ours. Matt sits and listens to us as our engineer every day. And he tells us he can't get enough. He can't. He wants more. Georgia. <laughs> and of course, all of our listeners. He wants more know, extra work. Yeah. Yes, we appreciate our listeners. And for those who listeners who just can't get enough of us, do you know we have over 400 podcast episodes that's a great point. You know, Tia, they can go back to 2017 when I was recording this by myself <laughs> in the basement if they want to get flashbacks to yes. talk about the Stacey Evans, Stacey Abrams campaign. Hey, Tia, um, we're obviously still recording the podcast, uh, but I don't know if you've seen it, but apparently George Santos was just voted out of the U.S. House, according to the New York Times. Oh. Well, then there it is. I knew Breaking voting news. was underway. And I was, again, you guys know I'm recording from my closet, so I did not want to pull up any live streams. Yes, I uh, decreased my bandwidth for great recording sound. So thank you for the breaking news because I have not seen anything and it hasn't come across. Oh, wait, I just got the email and it was 311 to 114. Wow to present. So, yes, George Santos is expelled. Wow. I think I would have voted to keep him in. Hmm. Yeah. Let Why? the voters of his district make their decision? I think so. I mean, I think there's a big difference between an accusation and a conviction, even if it does involve um, only fans and Botox. I feel like you got to kind of have it proven in a court of law. Otherwise, you're you're, you're going to be expelling a lot of members of Congress. Although most have the decency to resign yep. once Botox comes out in court depositions. And, and the history, the mountain of lies and inaccuracies. And, yes. And and. and fraudulent behavior before that. Yeah, but Republicans can certainly rightly point across the hall to the Senate and say, what about Senator Menendez, who As faces really serious charges. I mean, that's a lot worse than Botox over there. Conspiring with a foreign yeah. government. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> All right. Well, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. So, we've got new House and Senate maps. Those are the State House, State Senate, drawn by Republican leaders. They were unveiled just three days ago, but GOP-controlled committees in both chambers passed the maps out yesterday, and they're expected to be on the floor for votes in each body today. Now, Republicans say the new maps comply with federal judge Steve Jones's order to create seven new majority black districts, two in the Senate, five in the House. But Democrats say the lines may increase black voting power in some districts, but deny black voters the opportunity to elect Democrats, their usual party of choice, to those new seats. Greg, you've been spending time at the Capitol. I know Patricia has as well. But Greg, how were the maps able to get through just two days after they were introduced in this special session? Yeah. And as you mentioned, the voting is going to go on this morning. But Tia, we're in a lightning fast expedited special session the judges set a deadline for next friday and so legislative sessions usually last at least a week this is going to move very quickly and as we heard on politically georgia earlier this week from john porter a former republican aide to the lieutenant governor uh, the majority republicans want to have what they call first mover status they want to kind of set the blueprint first early early and wait as long as they can to release these maps so that there's not enough time uh, for a lot of dissension, for a lot of opposition to rally around it. The, lo- the shorter the time period they have, the less likely it is that, that any opponents, not just Democrats, but also Republicans who are upset with the way that some of the lines have been drawn, have time to, uh, to, to rally opposition to them. So speaking of that, Patricia, Democrats proposed their own version of these maps that came out, I think, yesterday. Um, we know Democrats don't have the power to get these maps really give much traction, but have they raised any points? Have dem- have Republicans said, hey, we're willing to kind of hear you out on certain points, or are they just rejecting the Democrats' arguments wholesale? So they certainly have heard them out on these points. They've had public hearings, relatively lengthy, lengthy public hearings. Not only were Democrats allowed to have input, members of the public, as many who wanted to sign up could have input. And they did make all of their points. I think the most salient point is on those Senate maps. There were very specific districts that Judge Jones said needed to be changed as a part of this process. And only a few of those were changed. Some of them, many of them rather, were not. Now, the Senate certainly did create two new majority 
majority black districts. It did come at a cost, however, to some districts like uh, a minority opportunity district is what they call it. If it's um, a large share of the minority vote, but not a majority share, some of those districts did see declines and those uh, objections were raised. Uh, they were raised many times, but Republicans simply have the votes to pass this. They've been told by the leadership they need to pass. They need to pass quickly. Once they're passed at the committee level, that's really the only time that there would have been any changes to these maps. And so now that they've been passed at the committee level, we certainly expect them to pass the chambers relatively quickly. The real veto opportunity, if you want to call it that, is going to be the judge. He's the one who's going to decide if these have met the very specific parameters that he laid out. And Bill, we've talked about the fact that we haven't seen the congressional map yet. That's kind of the most anticipated one. The direction from the judge is for them to build a new um, black majority district in West Metro Atlanta. That's the big one, right? Yeah, and it will presumably um, give Democrats an opportunity to pick up one additional seat in uh, the U.S. House. Um, Greg, I was interested in the fact that you interviewed Rich McCormick last night when uh, you were out at the at that DeSantis-Newsom uh, debate that we'll talk about a little later. And McCormick is the one guy who stands possibly to be drawn into a more competitive uh, district, right? I mean, there's already a Democrat. Jerrica Richardson is already now. She's going to run in the new what she thinks will be a newly drawn six. But... McCormick said, I'm not worried about it. Bring him on. Yeah, he said, I am all in. Let me play that audio for you from last night. Of course. You're all in. I've, I've made a commitment just like I did last you time. You don't know what district it will be. We didn't yeah. know last time. Yeah. I committed to it. You're right. I, I, I committed to it early. And, uh, and we, you know, obviously, seven and six got flipped over. Who knows what's yeah, going to be? Your opponent was going to be, yeah. Yeah, that was me interjecting, too, and, and, and talking a little bit about the challenges he's facing. But, Bill, as you mentioned, you know, McCormick, he's not the only one whose district will be redrawn, but he is maybe one of the most likely. Barry Loudermilk, who represents the district mm-hmm. just uh, just west of him, could as well. But there's a big difference between those two lawmakers. Yeah, let me say here that the Republicans have surprised me. I think a lot of the assumptions that people built into the idea that there would be new maps that were ordered by a federally appointed judge because they had violated the Voting Rights Act, I think there were large assumptions made that that would come out um, broadly in favor of the Democrats. And that just has not really been the case at this point. There are indeed minority black districts that have been created, but those black voters have come out of the districts of other Democratic districts. And so there will be sitting incumbent Democrats in the state house in particular, who will lose their seats mm-hmm. as a result of this. And so the Republicans have been really deft in meeting the letter of the law on some of these. We've heard from a number of voting experts, um, uh, nonpartisan voting experts, I have to say, voting rights advocates vehemently disagree with this. But voting rights experts have said, yes, these do check the boxes to a large extent. Um, And then as far as the congressional map goes, that could draw black voters out of existing majority black districts without drawing those down to be minority status. And so to me, all of my assumptions have gone out the window. The Republicans didn't give an inch on their own electoral advantage when they redrew those maps that had very specific requirements. And so I, I don't know who we're going to see take a haircut on this congressional map. Yeah. But, but the, the point also that you just raised, Patricia, is that at the end of the day, the judge is going to have the final say. So these maps yeah. are going to go back to court 
and the judge is going to review them. Um, how, Greg, have you been talking to Democrats? Do they think at all that the judge might save them from what they, the General Assembly is doing that Democrats disagree with? Or, you know, what's, what's the temperature there of this next review? Particularly in the state Senate, where uh, Democrats believe the, 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 how the new redrawn lines were particularly egregious, even though, again, they created two new majority black districts, but they also uh, mangled with two Democratic-held districts held by rising stars who are both uh, Democratic lawmakers. Um, but also the clock is ticking. You know, we're getting really close to qualifying. There's all sorts of deadlines for to get on the ballot. And, of course, in the legislature, in the, in the U.S. Congress, you can live wherever you want and run as long as you're in the state. But the legislative rules are you have to live in your district a year before that election. And that we're already within that deadline. So that's why lawmakers are in such a, a really tough position right now, not knowing where their districts might be. I love the fact, uh, Patricia, that you said all of the assumptions that many people have made are kind of gone out the window as we saw the legislative maps. But, I, but it's interesting to me that on this show, um, after Judge Jones ordered the, re, the redrawing of the maps, Speaker John Burns said, we will draw maps that we think Judge Jones will be very happy with. But in fact, the question is whether he'll be technically happy, uh, happy with the House map, for, for instance, which does increase black voting power, but doesn't necessarily increase black uh, ability to elect Democrats to those seats. Well, and that's the question really here, because while racial gerrymandering is not allowed, partisan gerrymandering is allowed. And so is that conflating or assuming that black voters will always necessarily choose only black candidates and that white voters wouldn't choose a black candidate? And so it it literally is a matter of opinion for the judge to decide. Uh, Republicans have also appealed that initial decision by Judge Jones. So there will continue to be legal um, machinations throughout this process. And when the House committee was getting its work under the underway, the Republican chairman said, we've appealed this decision. We're going to go ahead and go through with this process. We're going to um, draw these maps. We believe they meet the order. However, we're not assuming that these will stand mm-hmm. either. He mm-hmm. said they probably will in 24, but you never know after that. So even the final word will not be the final word. And Bill, there's also Republican hardliners who, and, and they're not winning out so far, not not so far, but there are Republican hardliners that I've talked to privately in the legislature who want to go the route of Alabama, which is basically defying the court order and bringing it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court where they feel like they could somehow win a challenge. But, but wait, are you suggesting there are enough of them no. to stop the voting that no. will approve these maps no, no, today? No, no, no. But I'm just saying that there is that strain of thought yeah, within yeah. the Republican Party among some um, we, as these maps, right. as these la- third version of these U.S. House maps await to be to be released, who 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 feel like they should kind of go on. They're not going to win out, I don't think. We everything we've heard is we're not going to be Alabama, but there is there is that sort of block of of Republicans who want to kind of take it to the judge. Greg, do you think there will be any Republicans that vote no on these maps? Um, the only Republicans I can see of that vote no on the maps are, are, are the ones who are directly affected by them. In terms of, <laughs> who are running against each other. But even those two Republicans both released a statement saying, hey, you know, this mm-hmm. stinks, but we're, we understand why this might be. And frankly, as we mentioned the story, in one of our stories, there is a high likelihood that one of them ends up either retiring or getting another job or, or doing something else. So usually the, on the Republican side, because they're controlling the maps, these things have a way of working out. But the Democrats 
I mean, I'm fortunate, you know, this is a weird position as a reporter, but I know Patricia and I were breaking the news to some of the Democrats we were talking to earlier this week that they were stuck in districts together. You know, one of the lawmakers we talked to was driving carpool and hadn't looked at the maps yet. And we had to break the news. Hey, you know, you're you're stuck with your with your neighbor and it's going to be a bitter, a bitter runoff, a bitter primary, I should say, if they both end up running. Yeah. And when you have these uh, Democrats who are in the same county delegation in particular, I think we're thinking about the Cobb County delegation. These are allies. They Mm -hmm. are good friends. They've cheered each other on. They've campaigned for each other. And all of a sudden they're going to be campaigning against each other if they both decide to do that. Now, somebody else who's been affected by these maps is State Senator Elena Parent. She, way back when, was also redistricted into a House district with another Democratic colleague, Scott Hogan, and they had a conversation between the two of them. And he said, well, I think you should run. And she said, I'm exhausted. I have small children. I'm getting out of the game for a minute. And then she, that's how she eventually ended up in the state Senate. So these lawmakers, even the ones who are who are younger, have been through multiple rounds of this. And it, it can affect the ones who least affect to who least expect to be affected. So it has come as a shock to, to some of those who didn't expect to see their own districts really dramatically overhauled when this process began. So let me ask you guys a question on the other side. Are there any Democrats who could vote yes on the maps? Uh, I doubt it. Usually Democrats end up voting in a block um, against these maps. And, you know, the only Democrat I could see uh, in previous months voting for it would be Misha Maynard, but she has since uh, uh, you know, switch parties and now is a is a proud Republican as of a few months ago. So I, I really doubt to see any Democrats voting for it. I agree with that because Democrats are really making the larger point here. It's not just about their own districts. It's also about this concept of equal representation, particularly for black voters. And so this is about um, much more to them than an individual member's seat or the configuration of an individual member's lines. Um, some of the Democrats certainly are breathing a sigh of relief. Some of them had gone to leadership ahead of time to say, I would really appreciate it if this could look a certain way. Um, so they're not angry with their own districts, but I think they feel a a larger point has to be made by voting against these maps. Bill, any final thoughts as we wait for the congressional well, map? Well, yeah, I do wonder. I mean, Republicans have the upper hand here. They can pass these maps. But if, in fact, uh, this notion that Democrats will be able to argue throughout the 2024 election cycle that uh, Republicans have denied black voters the equal representation that Judge Jones suggests they deserve, uh, will that become a potent uh, campaign issue for uh, Democrats to use in races in the state next year? That was the issue in 2018, 2020, 2022. Um, It doesn't always work in their favor, but it certainly does uh, resonate with Democratic-based voters. All right. Well, as we said, the revised maps have to be signed into law by the end of next week to meet the judges December 8th deadline. So we'll continue to monitor the process. Keep all of our listeners updated. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We write newsletters every morning delivered to your email. You can get the new Politically Georgia morning newsletter, your daily jolt of news, insights, and analysis from Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Adam Van Bremer, and me, if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Sign up at AJC.com newsletters for all the politics news you need headed into 2024. That's AJC.com newsletters. All right, guys, two powerhouse governors went head to head in Georgia last night. Alpharetta, Florida governor and GOP candidate for president Ron DeSantis and California governor Gavin Newsom. They debated for 90 minutes on Fox News with Sean Hannity moderating so i'll as you guys know my mom's in town we went out to see christmas lights we got back home caught the last 30 minutes of the debate and then we started it over from the beginning because i recorded it and my mom was like is this a debate this is messy that was her her recap was this was messy so greg you were in the room was it as messy in person as it looked on tv Yes. Well, by the way, I was not in the room. You know how these debates work. I was right across the street at a media filing center with a lot of reporters, including our own producer, Shaney B, who was also there. Um, but yeah, it was messy. And uh, I, I had the same exact, it's funny because I'm sitting there writing notes and suggested headlines and all that kind of thing. And I immediately write messy. <laughs> I immediately write messy over and over again because the first half hour was unwatchable. There was unintelligible crosstalk throughout you know vast stretches of the first really the first hour even the moderator sean hannity was, was basically saying hey guys let this breathe i don't want to play hall monitor here uh, but at one point he said uh, that this was getting rather dull because we couldn't hear either of the candidates because they were yelling at each other so loudly so patricia one of the things that struck me as i watched it is they made this big deal of coming to georgia coming to a swing state coming to alpharetta which is known as a historically conservative area, but it's becoming bluer. But what was the point of coming to Georgia and being so strategic with no studio audience? It could have been anywhere. I don't know why they made such a big deal that it was in Georgia. It could have been in France. It could have been in Brazil. There was no indication. It had. They had no interaction with Georgia voters. There was a big conversation like, oh, it's so important to be in a swing state on not so friendly territory. Um, it just didn't matter where they were. And I think that was a big missed opportunity for um, Fox News and Sean Hannity. They have done events here in the past with candidates and there were studio audiences. And I thought it was a lot more effective. But as it was, it was just these three men in a room barking at each other in like a faux presidential debate. It it felt very much to me like kind of a macho fever dream <laughs> so ridiculous yeah and bill i want you to get get in on this because it did almost seem like a two-on-one at times yeah sean hannity would you know talk about well look at this statistic and for the most part they were kind of always presented in a way that made florida look better than california what did you take away right, from that so i want to be really transparent I have never been a fan of Sean Hannity's. I go back to the days when he was just a local, what we used to call shock jock on a local radio station here in Atlanta. In the early 1990s. Yeah, and even in those days, I found him to be particularly offensive. That hasn't changed over the years. Last night, when he began the show with what struck me as a rather pious statement about the fact that, yes, 
I'm a conservative, but my role tonight is to be an objective moderator who allows each of these governors to get their points across and then unfurled a series of graphics. I don't know about the data that he used for the many uh, uh, setups that he had. Maybe it was accurate. Maybe it wasn't. He didn't source it in any way. But certainly, you're right, Tia. Everything he presented during that, especially that first half hour, was essentially an attack on California as opposed to Florida. And Greg, um, we've talked about how Governor Kemp has not endorsed in the primary, but he did make it clear that he's not a fan of Governor Newsom. He took a swipe. I had to look up what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So can you explain? He tweeted, until two months ago, California banned state-funded travel to Georgia. We're glad Governor Newsom can get a firsthand look tonight in Alpharetta, Georgia, as at why Americans and businesses alike are fleeing California for states led by Republican governors. <laughs> yes, uh, and this is part of a spate of restrictions from blue from from left leaning states uh, over abortion rights uh, and and who are upset about abortion restrictions in some Republican led states like Georgia. Um, but Tia, you know, you're right. Uh, Gavin Newsom has become sort of an avatar to many Republicans for all that is wrong with left leaning policies, which made it easier for someone like Ron DeSantis to accept this debate because he's been campaigning as much against California as he is as a campaigning against, or even more so than he has been campaigning against Donald Trump or Nikki Haley or any of his Republican rivals because California has come to represent to a lot of conservative Republicans just this sort of cesspool of liberal policies gone wrong. Although, and I will, we talked about how there were a lot of stats thrown out by Sean Hannity and um, the two governors. PolitiFact did a great job of live fact checking throughout the debate. So if anyone is curious about some of the stats thrown out, you should definitely check out PolitiFact. Um, and, and one of the things they said was actually there have been more people moving from Florida to California than people moving from California to Florida in recent years. So that was um, an interesting thing. Um, Patricia, I want to let's talk about the soundbite, the most viral soundbite of the night. Shaney B pulled it for us. Let's play it and then we'll get some reaction. You're trolling folks and trying to find migrants <laughs> to play political games, to try to get some news and attention so you can out Trump Trump. And by the way, how's that going for you, Ron? You're down 41 points in your own home state. So, you know, ouch. Um, we all knew that Ron DeSantis needs some, he needs a boost because he's starting to lag behind Nikki Haley. He really needed the debate last night to go well. He's the only one running for president right now, not Gavin Newsom. Do you think this helped Ron DeSantis or hurt him in the long run? I really don't think it helped Ron DeSantis. I think that he has a number of opportunities to debate. Uh, he typically seems to get um, a bit angry and punchy and a bit defensive occasionally, talks over people, interrupts, and it, it just... You know, they say that you won't remember what people said, but you remember how they made you feel. Like, he just made me feel very anxious. I'm like, stop talking. Why are you screaming? <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I thought that for Gavin Newsom, it was just so deft to suddenly cast himself in a movie where he plays the president and um, really cast himself as a genuine presidential contender. I think that that's what he achieved. And he did have some really good one-liners. He also pointed out or said to um, DeSantis, I know that 
Joe Biden is old. I would rather have Joe Biden at 100 than you at any age. Um, He also made a lot of points that the Biden White House appreciated, talking about the economy, talking about uh, record low unemployment, talking about the fact that inflation has slowed, um, making the points that sometimes the White House struggles to make on its own. Um, There were a lot of punches that landed on on Newsom as well, particularly about California. Um, That's a large, unwieldy state to try and govern. Um, But I think the way that DeSantis phrased them um, and the tone he was using made it really hard to even hear what he was saying. I I think, yeah, I mean, DeSantis, you know, there are a lot of people who this morning have said, well, DeSantis, we saw a new side of Ron DeSantis. He's more aggressive. Uh, He's, you know, more outspoken than he has been on the debate stage with other Republican contenders. But what he also showed last night is that he's got an angry streak. He can be really kind of an offensive character in the way he goes after, he went after Newsom last night. But I'm, on the other side of this, who who was the audience last night? Um, The viewers for the actual debate itself, Sean Hannity uh, fans, uh, Fox News fans. And I understand that there are going to be some sound bites today that Newsom uh, had that will in fact uh, resonate with Democratic voters. I, I don't know. It, it struck me that at a certain point last night, as Newsom watched these graphics rolling out about how bad California is compared to Florida, Newsom, who's always said, "Oh, I like going on Sean Hannity's show. He, we have friendly." At a certain point, I wondered if Newsom didn't say to himself, "What the heck did I agree to this?" <laughs> no, for? I think I think the audience was Democratic donors, Democratic really? staffers for 2028 campaigns. Oh, okay. um, and masochists like us, mas- <laughs> people paid, literally paid to watch it. Um, Democrats are, don't care what Sean Hannity says. They don't care particularly what DeSantis has to say about him, um, but they want to see a uh, somebody who can debate well, who shows up on camera, who can be assertive without being aggressive and nasty, somebody who is presidential. And so that, to me, is uh, what he wanted to achieve. He literally was auditioning for the role yeah, of presidential yeah. contender out of all of the other Democratic governors and, and you know, ambitious politicos, and there's no shortage of them. And uh, I think the next soundbite that we're going to hear really demonstrates that. This is Gavin Newsom right after the debate. This is Fox News, hardwired with a point of view and a bias that's well expressed, this doom loop of Fox News, every single night. And you have their most popular conservative host, and you've got a candidate who's platformed on Fox every other night. So what do you expect? I wasn't expecting cookies and cream. (laughs) No cookies and cream. Yeah, so I think that's interesting because he basically said he went into the lion's den, but he went willingly. I wanted to know, do you guys think this could backfire on Newsom? Like, do you think there are folks in the White House or in the Biden-Harris administration saying, I wish this guy would sit down and quit trying to be, you know, quit trying to position himself as president now? Yeah, no, the reason I don't think that is because the Biden campaign was breathlessly <laughs> retweeting uh, some of the best sound bites from Gavin Newsom, including the one where... Uh, where he said, hey, I know I know one thing's for certain here. I'm paraphrasing. Like, I know one thing's for certain. Neither of us on the campaign stage will be our party's nominee in 2024. That was kind of the, the scene, the theme setting quote of the night from Gavin Newsom. And we saw Biden's campaign and many of his operatives amplifying that and other kind of attacks that, that Gavin Newsom had 
against Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think that Democrats um, would rather have Newsom doing this out in the open than some sort of Mm -hmm. surreptitious um, whisper campaign against Joe Biden. He's out there being a team player, uh, making points on behalf of Joe Biden that many of their own surrogates aren't making effectively. So I think they know he's ambitious. They know he wants to be president. Um, They would rather have him on their team than secretly against him. All right. Well, we'll we're going to leave that there, the wacky debate there. Um, (laughs) Should have used wacky in my headline. (laughs) We're going to shift gears a little bit. I want to bring you guys to my turf in Washington, where a few interesting things are going on. Even as we speak, there may or may not, quite frankly, be a vote today on expelling George Santos. It looked like there would definitely be a vote. But then when the House schedule came out this morning, they said, uh, Maybe, maybe not. I don't know if anything changed or if they're just um, kind of praying that he might resign before they bring it to a vote. But we'll be standing by for that. But also, I wrote an article about an interesting year that Marjorie Taylor Greene has has had. We've talked um, on this show about how with Speaker McCarthy in leadership, She's enjoyed some insider status, Um, but now that he's gone, she's kind of returned to her roots. She's been much more critical of new speaker Mike Johnson. She's gone on the attack about um, against fellow Republicans, but she says this is who she's always been. Let's listen. I feel very much the same way our voters feel, and I've been telling them that, and I've been saying it publicly. Republican voters are sick and tired of Republicans in Washington. Republicans in Washington constantly promise to do stop the weaponized government. We're going to secure the border. We're going to, you know, they name all their whole list of things they constantly promise, but then their actions never match their words. We get nothing but strongly worded letters. Uh, they go on television and give their talking points. They put out their five-minute committee uh, hearing speeches, and then it's water under the bridge, and nothing changes. They never follow through and deliver on what they promise their voters. So I don't feel, I, I'm not having relationship problems. I feel like a Republican voter. I, that, that is where my mindset is. I am tired of being let down by Republicans in Washington. But Tia, that's why I ran for Congress. And uh, this was, we talked earlier this month is when she gave me that statement. But I think it's so interesting is not only is that why she ran, but it's why she's so popular among um, conservatives, among MAGA Republicans, particularly. But Patricia, this is a little bit of a shift in tone for her. Um, How much do you think this has to do with the fact McCarthy is no longer speaker? So she doesn't feel the need to kind of be a team player for his sake. I think that's a really big part of it. She had a very unique, unusual situation where she quickly ingratiated herself to the man who very quickly became speaker. Right after that, he needed her vote. He got her vote. And she was very, very loyal to him. And he was very loyal to her. So that was a very mutually beneficial relationship. That rarely happens for a freshman member of Congress to be in so tight with a speaker in their very first and second terms. Um, I think that this is her natural habitat to be against Washington. That's how she got elected. It is the audience that she talks to when she's on the stump for Trump, if she wants to follow up with Trump, either as a VP candidate or as a potential sort of successor to that Trump world. 
this is where the energy and the GOP base is. It's it's the exact language that she just used. So when she says, I feel like a GOP voter, there's a lot more GOP voters than Republican members of Congress. And it you can almost set a clock, set a stopwatch for when somebody goes into leadership or assumes power in Washington as from an outsider status. And then the longer they're there, the more they have to actually pass bills to keep the government open. <laughs> they have to make deals with the Democratic White House because that's just required. And then all of a sudden, they've sort of lost their pizzazz. They've lost um, they've lost the edge of their knife, how they got in there in the first place. And so she's keeping herself. I think she's going back to where she wanted to be and where she'll be um, most effective. And by the way, she doesn't really have a relationship <laughs> with the speaker anyway. And so I think this is where we're going to see her a lot of times. So, so I think one of the problems with a Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, some of those other far right members, uh, is um, that's what they're there to do, to make sure that their base understands that they are outsiders who are not going to accept the uh, conventional thinking of but whether it's Republican or Democratic members of the House. And they do that very effectively. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a powerhouse when it comes to raising money and keeping her voting base energized on her behalf. The question I have is, what are they doing to advance the important issues that the country faces? I, Greg, Patricia, Tia, really, when was the last time that Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced anything other than an impeachment resolution or something of that sort, rather than talking about legislation that actually might um, improve the lives of people in the state of Georgia, in her district, in the country. So to your point there, and I wish I remembered who it is, if you guys know, there's a a conservative Republican who recently delivered a floor speech. And that's basically what he said. He says, we have nothing to show for our gear in the majority. We haven't passed substantial legislation. We keep shutting down the floor. We have done nothing. And um, I think part of it is because again, the Republican party have kind of trained their voters. Trump has trained Republican voters to want wins on cultural issues. And they focus so much on pushing back against Democrats on cultural issues that has really clogged up the work. For example, appropriations has become a big mess in Congress, partially because Republicans want to add conservative policies like anti-LGBTQ, anti-diversity, anti-abortion language to appropriations bills, and then Democrats won't go with it. And so there are all these cultural wars issues, so to speak, that are really starting to define uh, conservatism in America in, may, in ways that make it hard to govern when you're so resolute on, on winning on the issues. Tia, I want to, first of all, congratulate you on that interview because it's so important to hear from somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene in her own words because she is characterized and occasionally mischaracterized um, by people either who support her or oppose her. And so hearing exactly what's on her mind, I think, is very, very helpful. Um, I think also, Bill, that she would argue she is doing what her voters want her to do. They don't want to pass bills they want to stop bills. <laughs> they don't want to pass anything that Joe Biden would sign. Um, they want to stop the bills that he wants. They I, want to impeach him and his 
his cabinet and um, uh, reduce kind of any government input in a lot of their lives. And so I think she she would argue that she is doing what yeah, she's no, no, to be I, doing. I, I think you've said it quite correctly. Um, and my question is, beyond rallying her base around the cultural issues, the you know, motions to uh, censure, uh, the impeachment motions, you know, what is she doing that in fact moves beyond her base and uh, and in, and accomplish something for the good of her district and the country? And and Greg, I want to bring you in. The, the lawmaker who I was mentioning earlier, it's Chip Roy hmm. of Texas, very conservative. Yeah. His quote is, I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one that I can go campaign on and said we did one. <laughs> and so for that coming from Chip Roy, do you think that'll be a problem for Republicans in messaging as we go towards 2024? They're all going to be on the ballot. They're all going to be on the ballot. And there's a potential, depending on what happens today, that at least one of those races is newly competitive. And, and that, that I think that's why one of the reasons why you're starting to see Congressman Rich McCormick get out there on TV more and get out there in the public more because we don't know what's going to happen, but his district could be could be realigned. Um, and, and look, you know, that's something that Republicans in the states, in state politics in Georgia, are very aware of doing their re-election campaign last year. You didn't see many of them, you know, running for state office talking about Washington politics as much as they talked about what they were able to accomplish in the state legislature in terms of the budget, in terms of tax cuts, in terms of conservative legislation and some moderate legislation as well. Um, and, you know, as Marjorie Taylor Greene in, goes into this new world, Tia, uh, where she goes from pariah to power broker back to what outsider? You know, I don't know. If she's a pariah anymore, but it'll be interesting to see how people like her try to try to strike that balance between doing something or just opposing everything. Uh, Greg, I think you just said something really interesting and important. Um, I spent a lot of time covering Congress, as did Patricia Murphy, of course, um, and now Tia. And and at a certain point around 2000, I just got sick of the partisan gridlock in Congress, the fact that it was ideology rather than solving issues that the country was dealing with. And I realized that there was a real value to coming back and being at the state legislature, where certainly there are big partisan divides and where Republicans dominate and sometimes pass things that that Democrats are very upset about. But the legislature is able to work together and actually pass bills that in many cases, like the mental health uh, reforms, actually work to the service of the people of Georgia. And Bill, many of these measures are bipartisan, consensus-driven. Yeah. You know, we write, we tend to write about the bills that lead to clashes, and we'll be writing about plenty of them uh, in the next few weeks. But a lot of what happens at the state legislature is bipartisan, is consensus-driven, and is, if not unanimous, is overwhelmingly adopted. And just in general, your state legislature, your local county commission, city councils are just a lot more busier passing laws that affect you. Congress is not where you should look to see who's passing bills that are going to um, affect me day to day. Look to your state and local governments. All right. We're going to take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. 
So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to the AJC's Politically Georgia. It's time for our listener mailbag. And just a reminder, you can call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime at 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer it right here on the show. But don't forget to include your name and where you live. Shaney B., what have you got for us today? I appreciate you uh, offering that disclaimer. Leave us your name and where you're calling from. Because, you know, if you don't, I'm going to give you a name and decide where you're calling from. And it's usually not pretty. Uh, but we got a lot of great calls here to the Politically Georgia uh, call-in hotline. And uh, first off from, uh, let's, go, let's start off with Rob. He has a suggestion uh, for President Biden. My thought process is that I think Joe Biden would do much better if Gavin Newsom was his VP. I don't think the public has trust of Kamala. And I think the, the dynamic nature of Gavin Newsom sort of being the underlying gives everyone, more, everyone the confidence that if Biden fails on health, he will succeed with Gavin. So that's my two cents. Thank you for the question. First of all, one of the most poignant or telling moments of the debate last night was when Gavin Newsom corrected uh, Ron DeSantis for mispronouncing Kamala Harris's name. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll note that. Uh, she's the vice president. We should know how to pronounce her name by now. Um, but sorry, beyond that, though, look, Kamala Harris is going to be the running mate uh, unless something dramatically significant changes. And this is something that Gavin Newsom said multiple times last night on national TV when Republicans continued to both Sean Hannity and uh, and, and um, DeSantis were pummeling him over whether he's running the shadow campaign for president. He said, no, I'm not. I'm all in for, for, for Joe Biden. I'm all in for Kamala Harris. And I have no plans, um, you know, to, 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 to make some sudden charge at the, at the nomination. Rob, uh, I don't, I mean, I think your observation is one that there are a number of people who share. There are people who are uncomfortable about Kamala Harris. Um, but I don't know what you do for a living. I hope you're not a Democratic political consultant, because if your advice is that you should replace on the ticket a, a talented black woman and have two white guys running for president and vice president, I think it's a losing proposition right now. All righty. That was Rob Shaney B. Who's next? Aaron from Atlanta is next. She's really scratching her head trying to understand Donald Trump's momentum. I'm the only one that doesn't understand how a president can pardon himself and how a president can go to jail, but he can still be president and how any of this makes any sense. I don't want a criminal running our country. I bet if you polled most people, they would say they would need it. What? How? Why? Let me know. Thanks. You're not alone, Anne. Anne. <laughs> However, Anne, you're, you also don't sound like a base Republican voter um, because when we get out into um, parts of the state outside of Atlanta, um, very conservative areas, and frankly, Trump country is not even conservative. It's just people really are very fond of Donald Trump. They don't believe these charges are legitimate. They also did not believe the last election was legitimate. They really 
trust Donald Trump to the point that when he is indicted on more than 90 felonies and he says they're all a lie, they believe him. And so those charges are really relatively easily dismissed. Um, He cannot actually be uh, pardoned here in Georgia, can't pardon himself here in Georgia. So that's why um, I think those charges against him are particularly dangerous, although I don't think that's certainly not going to be wrapped up or decided before the 2024 election. However, Anne, you may be a swing voter and the same kind of swing voter who more mainstream Republicans and Republican strategists are very, very worried about because on its face, the idea of electing anybody who's been indicted on 90 separate felonies would typically be a no-go, and it's certainly something that most independent voters really reject out of hand. They believe that Donald Trump is, in fact, their strongest primary candidate and their weakest general election candidate for that reason. And I think we also should just close by noting that there is a lot of uncharted territory with former President Trump. Should he become the nominee? Should he become president, which is a possibility? We've never had a, a sitting U.S. president facing serious charges, facing possible jail time. So there will be a lot of things that we don't know how this would play out, especially if he were to win in uh, next year. So um, thank you for that call. One more call, Shane. All right, let's wrap it up with Richard in Valdosta with with another potential candidate for Georgia governor. Big fan of the show. You guys are doing great work. On the uh, potential race for governor, I'm hearing uh, one other name being floated around, and that name is Dan Cathy. I was just wondering if you guys had heard anything that Mr. Cathy may actually be looking at uh, up and in the race. Go All ahead, right. Bill. Oh, okay. Uh, Richard, I, there is no question that Dan Cathy uh, is one of the highest profile and uh, most powerful business leaders in the state of Georgia. Of course, he's associated particularly with Chick-fil-A, but he also now has his own film studio, and beyond that, is building an entire community uh, uh, around that film studio. I have not heard personally about his being a potential candidate, but, you know, Patricia, as, as, as we start seeing more and more business leaders deciding they ought to be candidates for higher office, I suppose there's no reason why Dan Caffey couldn't be one of those people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we certainly know that um, having lots of money is extremely helpful in any political campaign increasingly. And also the once antiquated uh, idea that somebody needed to have government or political experience in order to achieve a high office just doesn't hold anymore. And I think that we're going to hear a lot of interesting names for Governor Greg. Um, And Georgia voters, especially Republican voters, don't usually love the first names they hear. I was going to echo that completely, that the Republican voters seem a lot more likely to go with so-called outsiders. I haven't heard Dan Cathy's name in particular, but, you know, we had barely heard David Perdue's name back in 2013 when he first jumped in the race for, for the 2014 U.S. Senate campaign. Of course, he has a famous last name, a famous cousin, but he was not someone remotely on the, uh, in in the political kind of orbit at that time. And of course he ended up becoming a U.S. Senator. And I just should note because so much um, these days age comes up and I know we're talking about governor, not president, but Dan Cathy is 70 years old. So that's a baby. in today's terms. (laughs) I just thought it was interesting. Like now it's like age becomes part of the conversation. So I was like, how old is he? 
All right. Well, um, thank you for the calls. Please keep calling in to our hotline. And now our week wouldn't be complete without our who's up and who's down for the week. Okay. You know, we want to end on a high note. So we'll start with who's down. Bill, who is your who's down? Easy. Elon Musk. Elon Musk has, is about to lose as much as $75 million in advertisers for X, uh, including he's already lost IBM, Apple, and Disney. At least they've suspended their advertising ever since Musk retweeted a really, really offensive observation about the uh, Jewish people. So what does he do? given an opportunity to address that problem yesterday, goes to a big conference run by the New York Times and tells all the advertisers out there, fine, uses a terrible obscenity and says, go ahead, leave uh, my platform. I'm not quite sure what the business strategy is behind that. So my who's down are the Georgia Democrats in the State House and Senate. I don't think they anticipated not only would their, some of their members be drawn into uh, districts against each other, uh, but some of their really fastest rising stars, Cyrus Draper, um, Elena Parent has had major changes to her district, Jason Estevez, first term member, very much uh, respected. Uh, I think they're really agonizing over the names that they've seen who who could really Sam Park Sam Park absolutely um Terry and Olowitz, they're they're agonizing over the names they've seen as people who are going to have to really do some hard thinking about how to win their next election well you both stole mine so I'll go with the uh, <laughs> the debate last night uh, the wackiest as Tia well put it the the messy the chaotic debate that for vast stretches of it was unintelligible crosstalk um DeSantis got in a few one-liners Newsom got in a few one-liners, so I'm sure they're happy with their performance um, in that sense. But uh, it, it didn't really move the ball in terms of uh, shedding new light on any of their policies or their stances on the major issues that define today. And I'll go quickly. My who's down is Fulton County Superior Court Chief Judge mm-hmm. Ural Glanville mm-hmm. because he is presiding over that YSL gang trial. And there has been so much drama and shenanigans. I know he is tired of all those attorneys and all those defendants. So God bless him as he tries to preside over a fair trial. All right. Who's up? Patricia, I'll have you go first. Who's up this oh, week? thank you. I'm going to give, uh, conversely, the Republicans in the State House and the State Senate told to draw maps with seven new majority black districts and, in fact, have done it. They've done it. Uh, they're doing it quickly. Looks like they're going to do it on time. It may get reversed by the judge, but so far they're doing uh, what they set out to do. All right. Greg. I'll give my who's up to the Georgia Bulldogs who play tomorrow in the SEC title game against Alabama. I will be there in my red and black. I cannot wait. Greg Bluestein, I got to say, you got to get away from politics every now and then. I had the same thought. I, my people who are up for this week are every person who has already got a ticket to sit in Mercedes-Benz Stadium and watch what should be an extraordinary game. I looked on Ticketmaster and other websites, you can't buy a ticket even in the highest levels of Mercedes-Benz right now for under about 350 or $400. And I thought about that because you're going to be there on Saturday. <laughs> Go Dogs. Yes. Greg is lucky. And um, I think the Bulldogs actually might be able to pull it out this year over the Crimson Tide. Um I'll go with who's up. Um, It's kind of a a somber who's up, but Sandra Day Mm. O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And we've learned this morning that she died at the age of 93. So a barrier breaking woman will always get a who's up in my category, in my, um, in my opinion. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 p.m. each day. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday at 10 for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,